0: Well, it's been a joy to be over here at our Anderson campus with you. This is the last week I'll be here, at least for a while, the end of our Misunderstood series. So I'll be headed back over to Creekside pretty quickly. Uh, we're going to wrap up the Misunderstood series in Romans eight twenty-eight. So if you've got a Bible, you may want to get over to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to have Romans eight twenty-eight up on the screen, but we will also be looking at the context of that passage. So you may want to find it in your Bible. As I was thinking about this passage a few weeks ago, uh, I was reminded of a song that kind of relates to what we're going to talk about this morning. Anybody who lived through the 1990s will remember uh, a song by Garth Brooks, a country song called Unanswered Prayers off of his No Fences album, one of his biggest hits. It was number one on the country charts for a long time in 1991. And uh, sometimes I thank God for Unanswered Prayers as sort of the main line of the chorus. So, what we're going to do this morning for just a couple of minutes before we dive into our passage uh, is something you've probably never done, which is we are going to theologically evaluate a Garth Brooks song for a few minutes. Uh, And I promise this is going to relate to what I'm going to talk about this morning. So just bear with me for a couple minutes. I'm going to read some of the lyrics and then we're going to talk about it. It starts like this. Just the other night at a hometown football game, my wife and I ran into my old high school flame. And as I introduced them, the past came back to me. And I couldn't help but think of the way things used to be. She was the one that I'd wanted for all times. And each night I'd spend praying that God would make her mine. And if he'd only grant me this wish I wished back then, I'd never ask for anything again. And then the chorus says, Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Remember when you're talking to the man upstairs that just because he doesn't answer doesn't mean he don't care. That's the country music triple negative is what we call that. (laughs) Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. She wasn't quite the angel that I remembered in my dreams, and I could tell that time had changed me in her eyes too, it seemed. We tried to talk about the old days. There wasn't much we could recall. I guess the Lord knows what he's doing after all. And as she walked away and I looked at my wife, right then and there I thanked the good Lord for the gifts in my life. And then he goes back into that chorus. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Now, what's he trying to get at? Uh, Imagine the scenario. Supposedly there was a girl that I guess he dated back in high school. And for all of these years, maybe he's wondered, what would it have been like if I had married her instead of the wife that I did marry? And he prayed and prayed, and for whatever reason, he and and his high school girlfriend didn't get married. We don't know why, doesn't tell us why. But he runs into her many years later, and all of a sudden he has this realization that I'm better off now than I would have been had God answered that prayer way back then, right? So that's the idea. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Why? Because he thinks the wife I have now is maybe better looking than my high school flame, right? The wife I have now is not as boring, right? I have things to talk, with, uh, to talk about with my wife now. And so God worked it out, right? He took away one girl and he gave me a better girl. Okay, that's the essence of the song. And so therefore, what God didn't provide, he looks back, he says, it's good that I lost that. Okay, now now I share that because the essence of sort of the, the, the mindset of this song is this, that if God takes something away today, you ought to keep your eyes out for God to balance the scales tomorrow or the next day. Or maybe a few years down the road. But at some point, what God takes away over here, he will give back over here. Preferably, hopefully, in this life. Right? It may take a while, but he's going to give that back to you. Okay, now, now, that mindset is prevalent not just in country music, but I think in all of culture, maybe even in our own hearts. Now, you may be less familiar with Garth Brooks, right? But you may be more familiar with the, the old musical, The Sound of Music. I don't have any pictures or lyrics up here. But, but you may remember the scene from The Sound of Music where uh, Maria, the nun, is sort of kicked out of the convent, right? And she is sent to take care of the Von Trapp children, And she's sad about having to leave the convent. And as she leaves, she says something along these lines When God shuts a door somewhere, He does what? He opens a window. Right? And that, that's a very common expression. I remember hearing that expression as a kid. There was even a Christian song with that expression. God, when God closes a door, he opens a window. The idea is one opportunity closes, another one is nearby. I always thought it was an odd metaphor because the way I always envisioned that metaphor playing out is like imagine you come home from work at the end of the day and you go to open the door and it's locked, right? And from the other side, you hear your spouse say, oh... I have closed that door off, but I did open the window. You may climb in through the window. You would go, man, that's not like nice, right? That's not a nice thing to do. And so I always thought it was an interesting metaphor that we use related to God. Is that how God operates? He goes, nope, not this one, not this one, not this one, but there's this little opportunity here. And so you need to keep your eyes open That when I close off one opportunity, I will immediately provide another one. And I think all too often we think he'll provide another opportunity of equal or greater value. And soon. Now the reason I bring that mindset up is because I think it often can infect the way that we view God. And I think it can especially impact the way that we understand passages like Romans 8.28. You're familiar, I'm sure, with the passage. Many of you are, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Right, and I think all too often we read a passage like this through the lens of sort of the, the Garth Brooks mindset, right? So the idea is, look, God's going God's to work it all out. It's all going to be okay. No matter what happens, I should look maybe today, maybe tomorrow, maybe in a year. I should look for God to balance the scales of the universe so at least I'll come out even. Right, and I think the danger with that approach is that over time, it can begin... To change the way we understand trial and suffering. And even change the way we understand the character of God. right? Because there, there are few things more critical to us as we try to walk with Jesus. There are a few things more critical than processing this, this concept of trial and suffering. What do I do when I experience loss and pain? Even death. How do I process that in the grand scheme of what God is doing? Because I, because I think if we think wrongly about how to consider the trials and sufferings of our lives, we'll begin to think wrongly about God. In fact, we might begin to believe God has promised us things that he hasn't promised. So what I want to do this morning is I want us to look carefully at Romans 8, 28. My guess is at times, you've even heard it quoted without the back half of the verse. You've just heard, God causes all things to work together for good. Or you've even heard it abbreviated further, all things work together for good. And the idea has been, hey, it's, it's going to be okay, right? Whatever happened you, don't, don't worry about it too much. It's not that bad. It's going to be okay. But is that what Romans eight twenty eight is saying? Okay, we're going to look this morning at why... I think the typical interpretation of the passage misses the mark. And in fact, what we're going to say this morning, this is a little different from some of our other misunderstood sermons in in this respect, that the the usual interpretation we're going to look at isn't 100% incorrect. It's just woefully incomplete. And in what it lacks, I think there's a lot of danger. Okay, so let's look for a few minutes at what is the typical or uh, common understanding in the passage. Like every week, we're going to look at a couple of quotes that utilize the, the common understanding of Romans 8, 28, and then I'll summarize what that common understanding is. So here's the first quote. Right now, God is working behind the scenes in your life. No matter what you may be facing, no matter what trial you may be going through, God has a plan to turn things around in your favor. Right now, he is working out a plan for your good. Right now, he is orchestrating the right people to come across your path. He is orchestrating the right opportunities to open up to you. Focus on his goodness in your life, knowing that he rewards the people who seek after him you'll experience his peace and joy and embrace the victory he has prepared for you. And that's from Joel Osteen. Now, I share that not to pick on Joel Osteen, but just to point out the the, the idea behind the quote is this. You lost an opportunity today. Look for an opportunity tomorrow. You didn't get to connect with the right people today. God's going to bring you the right people. Just wait. Just trust. You can feel happy that he will balance those scales out hopefully soon. Let me give you one other illustration. This is from a newspaper article in Missouri. This is about a, a school that burned to the ground. It says in June a fire broke out at New Covenant Academy's New Liberty campus. After months of renovations, the campus will open to students Tuesday morning. The fire was contained, and Romans eight twenty eight says all things work together for good. Linda Beck's teacher said. So I believe that it all worked together in His timing. Right? What's the idea? that building burned down, God gave us a newer, better building. That's a fulfillment of Romans 8.28. It worked out in our favor. What God took away, God replaced in a better way, right? So here's how I would summarize the the typical or common understanding of Romans 8.28. If something bad happens to you, expect God to do something good in the near future in order to balance the scales, Now, you you may not say it that starkly, right? If you really pause and think about it, you might say, yeah, I know that's not always true, right? But I think often the way we use Romans 8, 28, as we've seen, implies that that's true. So when someone's in the midst of a trial, we say, yeah, but, but everything's gonna work out for good. And we don't clarify what we mean. When will everything work out for good? How will everything work out for good? Who will it work out for? And so we can create this impression, look, if something bad happens to you, it's okay, keep your chin up. It's going to work out. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay soon. And like I said, I think that this common interpretation, it's not 100% incorrect. Sometimes it is true. You lose one job and maybe you get a better job. We see that happen in our lives at times. It's just that it's incomplete. Because it fails to take into account both the time horizon Of God's promises and the people to whom the promise is made in Romans 8. In other words, this is a promise uh, that is expanded in time and limited in its scope to a particular group of people. And that's what we want to look at for a little while this morning. Why is the typical interpretation incomplete and what does it mean And why does it matter for us? So let's dive in for just a few minutes then to ask the question, why is the typical interpretation incomplete? I'm going to provide just a few reasons this morning. The first one is this. Because the passage doesn't say that everything is good. But instead that God works everything for good. Okay, Now that's a critical distinction and it's one that is important as we move further into the passage. Because I think often our temptation, again, is is when we're undergoing trial or somebody else is undergoing trial, we always want to find that that silver lining, right? So yeah, maybe you lost your job. But that's okay. That was good. That was a good thing that God took that away because you got a a better one down the line, right? And, And in our haste to find the silver lining, sometimes we fail to pause and acknowledge that death and sin and suffering aren't good, and they're never good, because they're a consequence of sin, and a consequence of a fallen world, and yet yet we see that mindset in our own heart and mind all the time, to always want to say, "Nah, it's not really that bad, and I'm going to talk in just a moment about why I think that's dangerous. I was was thinking, though, um, as I put this talk together, my own family experienced a bit of a trial last fall in that uh we woke up in the middle of the night and our home was flooded it was under water we had had a pipe burst and there, there was just the whole house was underwater right so we had to move out right before christmas and and move into temporary housing and everything was in chaos and all of that they had to come clean the house well now we have new floors right so uh we have brand new floors so you could look at that and you go man wasn't that great that your house flooded because you wanted new carpet anyway right we did and now you got it, right? But I, I might say, mm, there, there might have been a better way to get new carpet, right? There might have been another path, right? It wasn't, this wasn't good. The, the trial wasn't good. Something good happened, and there's a distinction, right? And, and Romans 8 is going to make that type of distinction. It's not that our trials are good. It's that God can work them for good, and we're going to see how and when here in a moment. Another illustration I was thinking about when I first preached this sermon over at our Creekside campus. It happened to be Super, Super Bowl Sunday as I was preaching it about a month ago. And I was thinking about how, you know, there were, there were only two teams, obviously, that got to play in the Super Bowl, and, and I don't now remember who they were, so forgive me. But I do know that there were a lot of teams who didn't play, right? There were a lot of teams maybe who wanted to play. One of which would have been like the New Orleans Saints, right? They made it all the way to their NFC championship game and, and then they lost. So imagine you went up to the quarterback of the Saints, Drew Brees, and you said, hey, you know what though, man? Like, that's good that you lost because now you can watch the Super Bowl with your kids and eat queso, right? What, what might he say to you? Yeah, but I, I can hang out with my kids on Monday, right? I'd rather play the game today. The loss wasn't good, even though something good might happen. And we have to maintain that distinction. And here, I think, is why. Because all too often, when we fail to acknowledge the reality and the gravity of sin and pain and death, when we fail to acknowledge that, we are unable to grieve and move to a place of healing and trust, right? So as long as I continue to say, you know what, what happened? It's fine. It's fine. It's not that bad. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I never get to a place of trust and healing in Jesus. Jesus never minimized death and suffering and pain. One of the most powerful passages in all of the gospel narratives is in John chapter 11, where we find in John 11, of course, Jesus' famous saying, I am the resurrection and the life, that you'll remember. But remember what's going on in John chapter 11 is Jesus' friend died, right? Lazarus died. And so Lazarus' family comes and they say, hey, he's dead, and Jesus goes over to the the grave, Right And everybody's weeping because Lazarus is dead. Now, what's interesting about that is Jesus is about to call Lazarus out from the grave. He's going to say, Lazarus, come forth. And you know the end of the story. Lazarus gets up and he walks out of the grave. But before that happens, what does it say? It says Jesus got there and as he approached the, the grave and he sees the weeping, there's this verse, John eleven 35. You've memorized it, no doubt. First verse you memorized. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. But why? I mean, he knew Lazarus was about to rise again. Why did he cry? Because death is a cause for mourning. Because pain and suffering are not the way the world was meant to be. And so, so we dare not imply that everything that happens is good. And, and, and I think all of us have been tempted to do this either toward ourselves or toward others in the midst of suffering. Yeah, I've, I've heard it used in reference to job, job loss. I've heard it tragically used in reference to things like a, a miscarriage, right? You lost that child. Right? But, but that's okay. You, you've got another one. But no, it's, it's not okay. Because, because sin and death are not good. But the passage promises God will work all things for good in a particular way at a particular time. All right, so the usual interpretation is incomplete because of that. Not everything is good, but God works everything for good. Secondly, it's incomplete because Romans 8.28 is limited in scope. It is only for those who believe in Jesus Christ. All right, now again, we've got to look at the second half of the verse. All right, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. You remember a few weeks ago when we talked about Second Chronicles 7, and we talked about how anytime you see a promise in the scripture, you need to ask the question, to whom was this promise made? All right, so in Second Chronicles 7, we talked about how the promise was made to the nation of Israel, not to us in the United States in the 21st century. Right well when we move to the New Testament especially Romans chapter 8 you have a promise that's made to a particular group right and we talked about the dangers of taking a promise and expanding it to a group that it didn't apply to What is the group to which Romans 8:28 is speaking Well it's those who love God who are called according to his purpose and then Romans 8:29 is going to go further and talk to us about who those people specifically are Right. Look at verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to come, become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Who is the group to whom this promise applies? It's those who know Jesus Christ. Those who have trusted in Jesus Christ and now have the hope of eternal life, right? So you can't take Romans 8:28 just to say, "Hey, it's all going to be okay in the end." Somehow everything at every time for everybody is always going to work out. That's not what it says, right? But that's a very common view in our world. People sometimes unintentionally even quote Romans 8:28 or pull the concept out. Let me show you a couple illustrations from some uh, famous musicians of yesteryear. This is from John Lennon. He says, "Everything will be okay in the end." If it's not okay, it's not the end. Very John Lennon-esque. A little bit hard to understand what he's saying, right? Sounds wise. Let me give you another one that's framed a little bit more simply from Bob Marley. Don't worry about a thing because every little thing is going to be all right. Right? And the idea is in the end, it's going to be okay. It's going to work out, right? The universe has a way of balancing itself out right now as I read those quotes I can't help but think both of those men tragically died young right one from a bullet one from cancer and we have to ask the question in in what sense if we don't have the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in what sense is it going to work out okay where's the hope if Jesus didn't die and rise again then death won If we're not in Jesus Christ, if we haven't trusted in Jesus Christ, we don't have the hope of eternal life. And Romans chapter 8 is a promise that is narrowed in scope to those who trust in Jesus Christ. And so again, I think we need to be cautious about taking Romans 8 and sort of pasting it as a band-aid on any sort of suffering or trial or pain to simply say, hey, it's all going to be okay. What is the purpose? Romans 8.28 says it's it's for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. What is the purpose that, that it tells us in Romans 8 29 to 30? The purpose is that God is saving those who know him, those whom he has chosen. God is saving and God is working all things for their justification, that is they are declared right before God, and then their glorification, that is one day they will shine with the glory of God. So that for those who know Jesus Christ, there's a plan in place where we have an unshakable hope of a life that will never end, that will be, that will be free of trial and pain and suffering, right? So Romans eight twenty eight is limited in scope for those who trust in Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, the usual interpretation is incomplete because Romans 8.28 offers eternal hope and not quick fixes. The context of Romans 8.28 is that it offers eternal and lasting hope, not a promise that right now, tomorrow, next week, next year, everything will balance out. But at the end of the story, We'll be able to see that there's an eternal hope that is unshaken. Now, what, what I want to do, remember we've, we've talked each week about how the three most important aspects of interpreting any passage are context, context, and context, right? So we need to look for a moment at the context of Romans 8. So, so bear with me. I'm going to try to summarize the first eight chapters of Romans in about 45 seconds. So just... Uh, Hold tight, because I think it's important for us to understand where we are in the book. The book of Romans is, is Paul's great book about salvation, right? About all that God has done in Jesus Christ to provide us with life eternally. And it's, it's actually a great book of, of contrasts. We were dead in our sins, but Jesus has made us alive in Christ, right? Right? We were destined for hell. Now we're destined for eternal life. We were separated from God, but God now has has brought us near in Jesus Christ. We were at enmity with God, but we have peace, Romans 5, right? So, so the first three chapters of the book of Romans sets the stage and it tells us we're in a really bad place, right? Romans 1 through 3 essentially are, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, no matter who you are, you have disobeyed God and you are destined for death and hell. That's the, the bad news, the message of Romans 1 through 3. And then Romans 4 and 5 is, but in in Jesus Christ, God has made a way for you to have peace with God when you didn't have peace with God. In other words, because Jesus died in your place and my place, Jesus took our death and he rose again. Now we have peace with God. We've been declared righteous before God. That's that idea of justification. The righteousness Jesus had is now transferred to our account. We have peace with God. We no longer are God's enemies. We no longer are destined for hell if we believe in Jesus Christ. We're destined for an eternity with him. And then what Romans 6 through 8 does, which is where our passage is this morning, is it says, now that you know Jesus, now that you have been reconciled to God, and you have peace with him through Jesus... Now that that's happened, the Spirit of God can live in you, all right? And so this is really good news, whereas before, before you knew Jesus, you didn't have the ability to obey God, all right? You, you could try, you could read the law of Moses, but you didn't have the ability. The law provided sort of structures and an idea of what it meant to obey God, but it didn't provide any sort of uh, means to do it. But now, Romans 6-8, you've trusted Jesus, the Spirit lives in you, and now you can obey because the law is written on your hearts, but there's something else that the Spirit does, and that is the Spirit reminds you that you belong to Him. And that's the essence of Romans 8, really, is that the Spirit of God lives within you so that when you feel insecure in the face of the trials and the difficulties of life, right? you, you wonder things like, does God love me? Does God have a plan for me? What's going on as I, as I obey him and seek to follow him? I see chaos and sin and death around me. What's going on? Does God care? Romans 8 says the spirit of God living in you does a few things, helps you to connect with God so you can understand him and communicate to him, right? The spirit uh, speaks for us, groans for us in our weakness, but the spirit also says, Abba, Father, to remind us we're God's children and to remind us of what? That nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Romans 8:28 comes right before that beautiful passage about how nothing can separate us from the love of God. And what does Romans 8:28 say? The Spirit reminds us, if you know Jesus Christ because of his death and resurrection, you have an unshakable hope in the face of life's trials. Nothing can separate you or me from God's love, and from God's plan. So that when we talk about Romans eight twenty eight, then, here's how I'd summarize what Romans eight twenty eight is actually saying. Maybe you've seen uh, one of these. This is, uh, I don't know how well you can see it from your seat. This is a color by number, right? They make these for kids. Interestingly, they, they make these for adults too. They're just a little more complex. Uh, there are there are uh, numbers, obviously, one through five, and each number you color it a, di- a different color, right? And uh, in the end, it will create a, an- a picture. Now, I don't, I don't want to give it away if you can't tell what it is, but it's a unicorn, okay? Okay? So the idea is that I color each of these squares the right color, and then in the end, it becomes a unicorn. Now, I can't see that, theoretically, while I'm, while I'm coloring, right? Uh, after I shared this at our Creekside campus, one of our members actually went home, uh, and he printed this off of the internet with his teenage daughter, and uh, they sent me a picture of the, the finished product, it's a unicorn, right? It's beautiful, but, but here's the thing. The idea is this. When I'm coloring, I'm coloring green or I'm coloring blue. I'm zeroed in on one little piece, and all I see is that piece. It's not until it's all colored that I see the whole picture, and I go, oh, man, that's beautiful. Okay, this is the idea of what Romans 8 is saying about what God is doing in history. See, the thing is, all I see is, is my piece. All I see is my little sliver. And, and I can't see because I'm located on, on the picture, right? I can't see it all. But God can see it all. So that, that as it all comes together at the end of history, right? I, I may say, I don't, I don't understand each individual piece. I don't understand everything that happened here in this square. But I can look back and, and say, okay, God works all things together for good. Not just for me, but all things Together for good. For the salvation of his people. For the renewal of all creation. And for his glory. So Romans chapter 8, 28. I'd summarize it like this. For those who know Jesus, we have an unshakable hope that nothing can ruin God's plans for us. Even in the worst of circumstances, God is working for our salvation and toward the renewal of all creation. We have an unshakable hope that the end of the story is good. We have an unshakable hope that we are in Christ today and that the Spirit of God lives within us. Not that everything is good, but that God has a plan that he will carry to completion for our salvation and the renewal of all creation. Some of you are familiar with Genesis 50:20. These are the words of Joseph in the Old Testament. At the end of the book of Genesis, the, really the very end of his life story, he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Now, when I read that, I can't help but think, Paul may have had this passage in the back of his mind as he wrote Romans chapter 8, right? Because it, it, it sounds very similar. Now, what's interesting is, uh, you know, Joseph is still alive. As I said, the you the usual interpretation of Romans 8, 28, isn't 100% correct. Joseph had the opportunity in his life to look back and say, look what God has done. He used all of this that happened, and he's saying this to his brothers, by the way, who, remember, they sold him into slavery to the Midianites, who then sold him to the Egyptians, and the brothers are kind of afraid now that Joseph has some power, and he says, hey, it's okay, because God had a plan. It's okay in the sense that I'm not going to kill you guys right now, okay? God had a plan. But notice, even though he sees it in his life, he doesn't say, look, the plan was just so I could feel happy, so that I could avoid discomfort. Why? The plan was God was working to preserve, to save his people alive. What you intended for evil, God intended and used it for good. I would guess, though, if you were to say, hey, Joseph, would you like to do all of that again? Right? Would you Would you like to be tossed into a well, stripped of your coat, sold to the Midianites, sold to the Egyptians, falsely accused of rape, put in prison for well over a decade, and finally in a position where God could use you to save many people? I think Joseph might say, I'd rather that the second round of that course would be an elective, right? (laughs) But what they intended for evil, God intended for good. There's a somewhat parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 1. It says this, In Him, that is in Jesus Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, Also we have obtained an inheritance, that is an unshakable hope, as we said, having been predestined according to his, what, his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. God works all things together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those who know Jesus Christ, you have an unshakable hope. So what does that mean for us then? Nothing happens outside of God's control. Okay, nothing happens outside of God's control. And I want to distinguish that from, from this idea. It doesn't mean that God makes everything bad happen. In other words, the scripture is very clear. God doesn't do bad things. Right? James chapter 1. God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But what it does mean is that even when bad things happen, even in the face of evil, God is not out of control. I want us to think for just a minute, can you think of anything worse in all of history than the Son of God being murdered? That wasn't a good thing that they did, that we did. And yet look what Peter would say in Acts chapter 2. He says, Jesus Delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. In other words, God had a plan, but don't forget, you you guys did this. God didn't nail Jesus to the cross. You, You nailed him to the cross because you're evil. But God had a plan. Last week, somebody asked me, you know, how do I reconcile those two concepts? I don't. I don't know. I know that the scripture leaves them side by side. God is in control. And yet the evil and the sin and the death of the world are very real. And yet God is never out of control, right? This is hard for us to understand because we feel out of control, right? Things happen to us all the time that are out of our control, those of you who have kids, maybe you've experienced a moment where uh, you, you think that you're kind of in control of your children. We talked about that last week, and, and you're not, right? So maybe they come to you and they say, hey, I would like to make a craft today in the kitchen, right? And, and you, in a moment of distraction, you don't ask a lot of questions about what that might look like or what that might be, right? So you say, sure, sure thing, that sounds harmless, right? And, and yet you come into the kitchen later and find out that the craft is composed of glitter and confetti and Plato, right? Three of the most damaging substances in nature to your, to your home, right? So, so now all of a sudden, you are caught off guard, right? You thought you were in control. You're off guard. Not only is your day ruined because you got to try to clean this up, but your property value has just declined because you will never be able to clean it up. That happens to us all the time, right? We are out of control, and so we go, because I'm out of control, is God out of control? And Romans 8 would say, no, nothing happens outside of God's control, even in the face of evil and chaos and sin and death. Romans 8 also tells us this, that even in the face of evil and sin, what God is doing in part is he's conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. That's Romans 8, 29. That he's conforming us to his image. Often the scripture likens our trials and sufferings to, to training or to Discipline. Why are we trained in the face of suffering? Right? It's, not, it's not that suffering happens because we need to be trained. Right. Instead it is, again, God uses what happens in our lives toward that good. To conform us into the image of Christ so we can represent the character of God. Why? So we can be like Jesus. People who entrust ourselves to him. People who reflect his patience. People who reflect his love. Right and, and training is necessary for us to get there. Right, I, I'm a fan of the Olympics, right? I love especially watching the summer Olympics. But I'll be honest, I don't watch a lot of those sports in between the four years, right? So I don't watch a whole lot of gymnastics or hurtling or track events or whatever it may be, in between, I just watch them once every four years, right? But the athletes in between are doing what? They're training, right? They are training like every single day for four years. So if you're like a hundred meter sprinter, you are training for four years for what might be the most significant 10 seconds of your athletic career, but you got to do it you got to train in between, in obscurity, when nobody's watching. You don't train, you're not going to win. Now, if you asked those athletes, would would you like to have that 10 seconds at the Olympics without the four years of training in between, I'm going to guess most of them would say, yeah, if that were possible, I would love to do that. But it's not possible. You have to train if you want to be ready to represent your country well. That moment of running comes on the heels of the training. And so part of what God is doing is teaching us, you have to train. If you want to be a representative of Jesus Christ, conform to his character. And training is often painful. And training is often hard. Nothing happens outside God's control. God is conforming us to Christ's image. And then thirdly, we know from Romans eight twenty eight the end of the story is good. The end of the story is good. One of the the most beautiful two chapters in the entire scripture is Revelation 21 and 22. Right after the return of Christ, and in Revelation 21, 3 through 5, we see the new heavens and the new earth Right, free, free from sin, free from death. And, and Revelation 21, 3 through 5, I, I try to read it often because of the picture it presents that reminds me of our hope in Jesus Christ. We have no more pain, no more death, no more suffering. It says God will reach up. He will wipe away the tears from your eyes. No more crying. No more pain. We're not going to hit the end of the story and go, eh, it's just Okay. The end of the story is good. A couple of years ago, my wife uh, was watching a relatively long movie. And so she watched it over several evenings after our kids were kind of settled into bed. And uh, I was kind of in and out uh, of the house a couple of those evenings, so I wasn't really able to watch it fully with her. I would periodically kind of catch bits and pieces of it. Uh, but it hit the end of the movie, I think on night three, and I walked in and the credits are rolling, and she's just sitting in front of the TV like with this, this terribly pained look on her face. Somebody had recommended this movie to her, and, and, and it finished, and she goes, I hate that movie, right? Because in the last two minutes of the movie, They killed like her favorite main character. They had built all of this hope for his life and, you know, his love interest and all this. And then he died in the last two minutes of like a three and a half hour movie. She's like, this is the worst. They tricked us. That's not the end of our story. The end of our story. Jesus returns. All of creation is restored. No more pain. No more death. No more suffering. The curse is overturned. And that's a movie I want to see. And so Romans eight twenty eight says, in, in the face of the darkness we're in now, the end of the story is good. Right? There's no quick fixes. We don't have to pretend that suffering doesn't exist. But we know because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have hope that cannot be shaken. So quickly as we, as we close, and we're gonna prepare in just a moment for communion, how do we respond? First thing I'd say is this, trust in Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you don't yet know Jesus Christ, that's where hope begins, right? Hope doesn't, doesn't begin just by saying, look, keep your chin up, it's all okay, it's gonna turn out all right. Hope really begins by saying my only hope For life is in Jesus. For all who trust that Jesus died for their sin and and rose from the grave, you can know that you have eternal life. Starting today, you can know you have eternal life forever. If you you happen to be in the room and you're not certain that you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you don't know that you have that hope, I'd invite you to come talk with me. Come talk with somebody who, who you're with this morning. You can talk with any of these men that you see walking up and down the aisles this morning about how to know Jesus and have that hope. Secondly, don't be ashamed or afraid to grieve. If Jesus was not ashamed to grieve in the face of death, then we should not be ashamed to grieve. We grieve because at the moment the world is not what it was meant to be. But we also have hope. And we can trust God's character that he made a promise, a promise that that blows away the type of thinking that we saw with unanswered prayers. But a promise that is unshakable. We can trust that God is good, and we can trust that God is never out of control, that He's working all of history for our salvation and His glory. And then we remember the good news. We remember the death and resurrection of Jesus, but we also celebrate, as we celebrate communion this morning, what we remember is, is that the end of the story is good, right? When Jesus uh, celebrated that first Lord's Supper with his disciples, he said, I'm gonna, by the way, I'll, I'll celebrate this again with you one day in the kingdom. The day is coming when we'll sit at this feast together forever. There won't be any death between us and that day anymore. So as we participate in communion, we remind ourselves of that reality and we remind one another. That's why we're sitting in the room together because we remind one another as we pass these elements along and partake together that we have good news and an unshakable hope. So as the, as the men come forward, let's thank Jesus Christ for that hope and prepare to take communion together. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 3. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, He took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we praise you for the morning, the opportunity to worship you and to remember the death and resurrection of Jesus. As we close in worship, Lift our hearts up to the truth of who you are and the hope we have in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, we praise you that Jesus did. He paid for all of our sin and rebellion against you, and he rose again. And now we have the promise of life eternally and a hope that cannot be shaken. We praise you and thank you for your word, and we praise you for your Son and your Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.